John 1, beginning in verse 43. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So over the last few weeks, uh, these first five Sundays in 2021, we have been uh, talking about our distinctives as a church. Our distinctives are like the characteristics that make us us. They are beliefs, they are practices, they are structures that perhaps define us as a church to a certain extent, but, but even more than that, our distinctives remind us that God has called us all together uniquely for unique work here in our city. Um, a lot of people would ask, what's the point of having so many churches here in our cities? What, what's the point of new churches in our cities? What's the point of having so many like Christian nonprofits and ministries that even exist outside of the church and parachurch organizations? And part of the answer to that question is that God brings groups of people together uniquely, bringing unique sets of gifts and talents together for unique work. And the same thing's true of you. The same thing's true of your family. God has uniquely gifted and resourced you for specific work. We've talked about this before. We really talk about it a lot. And that's not separate from the church. You're functioning as a part of this larger body of Christ. But there's also a very personal element to that as well. So often, I think we can take a very organizational view when it comes to talking about the church Yet, in reality, the church is us, right? The church is the body of Jesus. It is men and women who have believed in the good news of his gospel and who have been called according to his purposes. Um, and his purposes include this unique work that you've been gifted and resourced for. So we've been walking through these over the last few weeks. And, and just in the way that we are called to unique work and called together uniquely, the same thing was also true of the very first followers of Christ, the men and women who were known as the disciples. And you might say, wait a minute, women? And yes, there were many women in the pages of the Gospels, many women who were disciples of Jesus. There were also other men who were disciples of Jesus who uh, may not have been a part of the twelve uh, who are singled out as being perhaps the most intimate followers of Jesus in the pages of the Gospels. But there were many others, many at least dozens of other people who were also seeking to follow 
Christ, the 12 disciples, or as they're sometimes called apostles, um, are clearly a special group, though. Um, They are directly invited by Christ himself into relationship. We see this story today with uh, Nathaniel and with Philip. Um, And the work that they were specially called into and I think uniquely trained for and qualified for was the work of apostleship. That that word apostle, it comes from a Greek word, as do so many of these words that we talk about here in the New Testament. The Greek word is apostolos, um, which literally means messenger or envoy. Think of that word ambassador that we use sometimes. That's part of the idea behind the word apostle. Um, Jesus was training these men to be the ones who would initiate a gospel explosion, who, who would be charged with taking the good news of who Jesus was to the ends of the earth and would be charged with training more followers of him. So today, as we look at the story of Philip and Nathaniel, and Nathaniel's also, by the way, sometimes called Bartholomew in the gospel account. But as we look at this today, um, we get many of these accounts throughout the gospel narrative where Jesus is specifically inviting people in. He's inviting them into the discipleship relationship. And I think there are a number of directions that we could go with the text that we read this morning. Um, You have to make note of the critical role that Philip plays in this story, the critical role that he plays in bringing Nathanael to Jesus. Um, I think we, too, in in a very literal way, but also in a metaphorical way, have been called to take people by the hand and lead them to Christ. Um, to be so bowled over by the fact that we have received this good news of Jesus, so bowled over by who he is that we can't help but go to the ones that we love and even just people that we know and, and want to not only tell them about it, but want to kind of take them by the hand and lead them to Christ. That's, that's part of what we see Philip doing here. Um, this, this kind of like, he says, come and see. You know, Nathaniel says he's from Nazareth. Nazareth was probably a town of about 2,000 people. It's very much a village. How could anything good come from there? How could the Messiah not come from Jerusalem, right? That's probably what a lot of people thought. So how could anything good come from there? And the call is come and see. Just come and see it. Come hear him. Come experience Christ. And that's exactly what Philip does. At the end of the day, guys, the central question is what do you believe? What do you believe? Belief is central to faith. You cannot have faith in things that you don't ultimately believe to be true. Let me say that again. You can't have faith in things that you don't ultimately believe to be true. Right? So, so this was true for Philip. He believed in the truth of who Christ was. He tells Nathaniel, we have found him whom Moses in the law and the prophets wrote about. And it's this guy, Jesus of Nazareth. He's the son of Joseph. And this was the foundational belief for him. We have found the Messiah. This is him. This is the one who the prophets wrote about. Come and see this incredible news. And so Nathaniel is skeptical. But upon even the like slightest supernatural experience, which was Jesus telling him, you know, I saw you under that fig tree. 
before Philip called you. Even just experiencing that slight um, exposure to Jesus's omniscience. Nathaniel is convinced and he confesses. He proclaims, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. And, and so two quick principles I want to throw out to kind of guide our thinking today. The first we've already mentioned. What we believe about Jesus is central to Christian faith. What we believe about Jesus is central to Christian faith. The first six letters of the word Christian are what? Christ. Christ. This is a faith system that is predicated on and built around what we believe about Jesus. Now note, it is not first about what we believe to be true about God the Father, right? Because we believe in large part the same things that Jews believe about God the Father. The distinction is what we believe about Christ. This is Christianity, And some people would even claim that the God that we believe in, the God that Jews believe in, is the same God that is the God of other religions. But Christianity differs from that in that it is built on the claims made by Jesus Christ and his followers, namely what Nathaniel says, that you are the Son of God. You are the one. You are the Messiah. You are the hope. No one, Jesus says, comes to the Father except through Christ. So if that is true, then what we believe about Jesus is central. It is preeminent. And then secondly, we profess what we believe to be true. What we believe about Jesus is central, and what we profess is what we believe to be true. If you really believe something to be true, and especially if you believe something to have eternal significance, then you talk about it. You confess it. You profess it. And here we see Philip not only professing it, but trying to convince others to profess it. Trying to take other people, lead other people to this truth of who Christ is. You see, Nathaniel, once he believes it, do what? Profess it. So here's the thing. What we believe about Christ as a church is paramount. What we believe about Christ is paramount. There is nothing more important. When we start talking about what we believe as a church, there is nothing more important than what we believe about Christ. If we get off track in our faith, if we become unorthodox in our belief structure, it will more than likely begin with some kind of incorrect thinking about Christ. And yet, sadly, I find that it's often the last thing that people want to know about, like when they start asking questions about belief. People kind of want to go, yeah, 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 the Jesus stuff, I've got all that, but what do you believe about marriage, right? Or or what do you believe about uh, gender issues or sexuality, or what do you believe about war and violence, or where do you stand politically, or what do you believe about the Bible, and and, and on and on. And, And I'm not saying that those are inconsequential or unimportant questions, But here's what we may miss. What we believe about Jesus forms the foundation on which what we believe about everything else is built. 
What we believe about Jesus forms the foundation on which everything else that we believe is built. So, so what we believe about marriage is not built on what we believe to be true about our culture or what we believe to be true about human nature or even what we believe to be true about love. What we believe about marriage is built on what we believe to be true about Christ. And you could just go on down the list. You have to begin with Jesus. If you want to understand what we believe, you have to begin with Jesus. And the language that we use to describe this, this distinctive that we've, uh, I think, uh, kind of enunciated as a church, is that Jesus is the center of our faith. Or put more simply, we seek in our theology and practice to be a gospel-centered church, to be a gospel-centered church. So in light of that, what do we believe the gospel to be? What do we believe the good news to be about Jesus? By saying we are a gospel-centered church, what we're saying is the good news of Jesus Christ, of who he is, that's the core as I sometimes say, that's the orienting access. Access. That's the thing that everything else revolves around. So, so what is this? Uh, Dane Ortland says this. He's a pastor. He says, the gospel is the startling news that what God demands from us, he provides for us. How? In his own son. The gospel is the message that Jesus Christ delights to switch places with guilty rebels. The one person who walked this earth, who deserved heaven, endured the wrath of hell so that those who deserve the wrath of hell can have heaven. I love that. So this basic yet extraordinary good news should color everything. Not just about our church, and, and like where we stand on certain positions. But for each of us individually, the good news of who Jesus is that we just read, that we are guilty rebels, and that we have a Savior who has delighted to take our place, that should shape everything about our lives. How we think, how we act, how we make decisions, what we believe on, a, on the whole gamut of points, it has to come back to what we believe the gospel to be. It should color everything. And, and if we're not careful, we can be led to believe very easily that there is other news that's better or that there's other news that's more important. These are sometimes called false gospels. And they're tricky, man. They're tricky because so often it's not somebody going, let me tell you what's better than Jesus, right? That's, that's not how it's presented to you most of the time. We talked about some of these a few weeks ago. You may remember we talked about moralism. We talked about the prosperity gospel. Uh, Christian nationalism is a big one today as well. Christian nationalism basically says our only hope as Christians is if we have political power, Right? Or our only hope as Christians is if certain people are in political office. Right, So it's saying our hope isn't Jesus. Our hope is actually in these human institutions. Right, So that's Christian nationalism. And, and this is nothing new, guys. This is not a 2020-2021 phenomenon. It's been going on for as long as the church has existed. 
So who Jesus is, what he has done, what that means for humanity, what it means for the cosmos, because there's a new heaven and a new earth coming, is the center of everything we believe. Everything else orients around it. And, and we, sometimes, uh, we sometimes use the analogy of a pair of glasses. It's, it's the lens through which we see things, or it's a filter. It's the filter through which everything flows. And the goal is that this would be true in the whole of your life, that the gospel really would shape your decision-making. It would shape your parenting. It would shape your spending. It would shape your earthly ambitions and like your understanding of what success is. Uh, one that I've been dwelling on lately, um, because this, this kind of language is just as prevalent in the church as it is in the quote-unquote secular world, but, but is all of this talk of legacy and leaving a legacy and, and what is your legacy going to be after you're gone? And so often um, we're talking about money when we talk about legacy, like, like are you leaving some kind of financial gift to an institution or to your family or to your grandchildren? Or we, um, we sometimes talk about that in other terms, but, but man, for me, the gospel reshapes that for me to the point where I go, it really doesn't matter in the grand scheme of things if I am successful in this life by earthly standards. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if I'm rich or poor. It doesn't matter if I leave a bunch of money for my family or if I endow some kind of institution that's doing good work my legacy does not matter, right? Me being remembered after I'm gone does not matter. I grew up in a church where just about every room in the church had somebody's name on it, or like pews had a plaque with people's names on it because somebody had given money to uh, provide for those things. And that's all well and good, but oftentimes that's sold to people as leaving a legacy for the next generation, right? And, and my gosh, like that is such a self-centered, earthly type thing to desire, right? It is such a fleshly type thing to desire. It, it's so the opposite of John the Baptist who said, I must decrease and he must increase. And so if you just listen to that kind of talk, it's very easy to think, well, yeah, I would love to be successful and I would love to help provide for coming generations. And I would love for people, honestly, if I'm, I'm being real, I would love for people 150 years from now to remember my name and, and to think about all the good stuff I did. I mean, this is why we have high schools with people's names on it and stuff like that. It's because that's a pull. People love that notion that 100 years from now, people are still going to be talking about me. But man, the most important thing is that we're talking about Christ, not that we're talking about me or you. So, so that's just an example of something that if we're not careful, like it can come to take uh, prominence and priority in our lives. And, and there's a host of other things, um, things that we, like being successful just in general, that my life doesn't mean anything if I'm not successful by like worldly standards. And, and so we could go on and on there, but man, that stuff is vying for our attention. It's vying for our affection. It's trying to pull us. And, and what it's telling us is hope is not actually in Christ. Hope is in this other thing. Or joy is in this other thing. It's not in Christ. The gospel says, no, no, no. All of that stuff is found and really only found 
with any kind of eternal significance in Jesus Christ. So the goal is that this would be true of your whole life, that he would be the center of everything and what you do, who you are, how you make decisions, that all of that stuff would orient around him. So as I said, this idea of false gospels is not new. It was very much a problem for the early church. And so one way, and we've talked about this before, but one way that the early church combated false gospels or heretical teaching, which was teaching that was clearly saying things that were untrue of Christ, was by developing faith statements that are sometimes known as creeds. And these faith statements were meant to be memorized. They were meant to be recited. Um, If you were at book club the other night, we talked about the fact that in an Eastern faith system, what you do shapes who you know or what you know. That's how people think. What you do shapes what you know. And so the idea of reciting something every day or memorizing something in an Eastern faith system, that's foundational. Like, that's forming something inside of you. Like, we love to talk about memorizing Scripture or hiding the Word of God in our heart. The early church was doing that in a variety of ways, but they were also doing that in and through the creeds, that we would not just memorize random verses, but that we would also memorize doctrine, that we would also memorize, like, what is real and true. Because it is so easy, and we see this today, it's so easy to open the Bible or have, let's say we had five people here and we said, hey, I want you all to read the same passage of Scripture. You could very easily have five different responses of what that passage of Scripture meant. Because maybe you've got somebody who's reading it correctly. Maybe you've got somebody who's reading, reading it out of context. Maybe you've got somebody who's reading it literally, somebody who's reading it metaphorically. And we see this all the time, don't we? Like, like people taking the Bible and going, no, that doesn't mean that. It means this. And so the question is, what is true? What is orthodox? The early church struggled with the exact same thing. It's why they created the creeds. It's, it's so that when we have a question about what is true, we can go to the faith statement and go, oh, here's what orthodox Christ-centered teaching is. So we talk about the apostles' creed a lot. Um, The Apostles' Creed uh, is, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. It's the Apostles' Creed. You notice it's in three sections. It's, it's triune in nature. It begins, I believe in God the Father. But then you see the core of it, the center of it is, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. And then I believe in the Holy Spirit. That's how it's structured. The Apostles' Creed was originally used as a baptismal statement. So when new converts to Christianity would come to be baptized, they would be asked, what do you believe? And they would say, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven. No, they would go through the Apostles' Creed. This is how they were taught what is right and good and true. There's another classical creed 
uh, that's known as the Nicene Creed. The Nicene Creed was developed in 325 AD, and it was in direct response to one of these false gospel-type controversies that I've been talking about. And, And at that time, it was known as the Arian Controversy. And it's where a Christian minister named Arius began teaching that Jesus was subordinate to the Father, that he he didn't exist on the same level as God the Father. He was a few rungs below God the Father. And in fact, maybe Jesus is actually like a created being, like we are created beings. And so this was part of what he was claiming. Orthodox Trinitarian Christianity, though, says no, Jesus is God, and he is eternal, eternity past, eternity future, just like the Father is eternal. And and so you might be inclined to think, guys, that this is like high-minded, high-level theology nerd type stuff, But, but notice that the core problem here is that the truth about who Christ is is being altered. And there's a snowball effect there. If Jesus isn't God, then you can see how that trickles down into all kinds of things, right? If Jesus is not a part of this unity of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, then he's just another guy, really, right? Maybe he's a good teacher. Maybe he's a better teacher than anybody else who ever lived. But if he's not God, then how does he really have power to do anything? Right? How does his death or resurrection make any difference in the world? And so it becomes a big issue. So this stuff matters. Whenever what is true about who Christ is is altered, it can easily become something that leads us far off course. And, and whenever you're merging, right, in the very beginning, it seems benign. It seems like it doesn't really matter. And, and yet if you keep on the same trajectory, you wind up way far away from where you once were. And so we cannot take that more seriously. We have to be watchful for it because the exact same thing is happening today and in much more veiled ways than it was happening for the early church. So in light of this, the very first kind of worldwide church council was convened It was called the Council of Nicaea, 325 AD, and they formulated what is known as the Nicene Creed. And you will notice that it's very similar to the Apostles' Creed, but it's a little bit more specific, and it's specific because they were addressing some very specific issues. And I want to read this to you. We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen. So just like the Apostles' Creed, this is basically divided into three sections, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But notice one big difference from the very first word. The Apostles' Creed is, I believe. The Nicene Creed is, we believe. And so this is meant to be something that the church reads, recites, memorizes together. We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all, of all that is seen and unseen. And just like the Apostles' Creed, the core of this, the center, the thing that this revolves around is the second part, we believe in one Lord Jesus Christ. Now, notice how detailed it gets. One Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God. There's no other children here, right? God doesn't have other sons that are going to come back at some time. 
He is eternally begotten of the Father. That's antiquated language. We don't use that word begotten anymore, but that means he's coming from the Father. It doesn't mean he was created by the Father. It means he's proceeding from the Father. And, and what it's getting at is that's not something that started at some point in time. That's something that's been going on forever and ever and ever and ever and will go on forever and ever. He's God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father, right? He's not a separate being. The Holy Spirit is not some separate being. This is one God, and somehow he is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's mysterious. Through him, all things were made. That's straight out of John 1. For us... And for our salvation, he came down from heaven. By the power of the Holy Spirit, he became incarnate from the Virgin Mary and was made man. For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. He didn't just pass out. He didn't fall asleep. Um, they didn't put him in the tomb, but he wasn't really dead. No, no, no. He suffered death. He was buried. On the third day, he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. He's fulfilling prophecy. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. So that is the gospel. What was paraphrased by Dane Ortland, like a God who loves and delights to save guilty rebels, right? is what we just saw. For our sake, he came down from heaven. For us and our salvation. For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. For our sake, he rose from the dead. All of these things he has done so that we might be reconciled to the Father. This is incredible news. We believe in the Holy Spirit, who is also the Lord, who is also God, the giver of life. He also proceeds from the Father and the Son, with the Father and the Son, he is worshipped and glorified. He has spoken through the prophets. We believe in one holy, Catholic meaning universal, Catholic and apostolic church. Why do they use the word apostolic? What they're trying to say is, we believe the same things that the apostles taught. We're not some new church. This is not some new thing. We haven't come up with some new form of worshipping Jesus. We're subscribing to the exact same stuff that the apostles taught. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. You don't have to be baptized every time you mess up, right? There is one baptism that he calls us to. We look for the resurrection of the dead, not, not Jesus. That's not what it's talking about there. It's talking about us, that one day we will bodily be resurrected, is what the scriptures teach, and our bodies will be perfected. And we look ahead to the life of the world to come, so there's not some point where this all blows up and everything ceases to be. No, no, no. We're looking ahead to what will be because of the good news of Jesus Christ. Now, that's beautiful stuff. Like, this is the kind of stuff that I don't know about you guys. It's the kind of stuff I need to be reminded of every single day, of, of what is true of God, of what is, what is true of Jesus Christ, what he has done for us, and, and what is to come. What will happen? So why do we read this? Well, along with the Apostles' Creed, 
this is something that we subscribe to as sort of like a basic faith statement for our church. Because with any of this, if you go, no, 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 that's not true, then you have left the reservation of Christianity. Like, this is just the most bare-bones statement of what it means to profess Christ as our Lord, right? So if there are parts of this where you go, no, that's not true, or I don't believe that, or I don't agree with that at all, then what you're basically saying is, I'm not a Christian. I'm not a Christian. So, so that's part of the reason why we kind of hold to this as one of our basic faith statements. It's not making any statements about like secondary issues, right? This isn't, this isn't making a statement on what we believe biblical marriage to be, for example. And that may be important, but that is a secondary issue. Like our salvation is not predicated on what we believe about that, for example. Does that make sense? So it's what we look to has like this elemental confession of what the gospel is, of what Orthodox Christian faith is. And, and notice, Jesus is both physically and metaphorically at the center of this. Jesus is the one that this kind of revolves around. And again, like this is something that in our lives, we should make it a part of our time with the Lord. Like reciting this, memorizing this, keeping this at our core, it will shape what we know. So reading the scriptures, reciting the creed are activities that form us. They're activities that shape us. Coming to the table is an activity that forms us and shapes us. We spend time dwelling on these truths so that we will be better equipped to deal with the myriad of false gospels that assail us daily. So, Jesus is the center of everything. <laughs> May our lives and our church find him as the center of everything, at our very core. May we look to him for our purpose, our identity, our values, our understanding of success, our understanding of what is true, our understanding of what it means to flourish. I want to show you guys a quick video. Really, the idea of being gospel-centered comes back to uh, 1 Corinthians 15 and, and the Apostle Paul calling the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ um, of utmost importance. Everything about you finds its purpose in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. My life is no longer about me. It's not about me and how I'm doing from day to day but it is in fact a resting and rejoicing in what Christ has done for me and then living in the light of that. Centering my life on the gospel means that I understand that it's God's gospel concerning his son, the person and work of Jesus Christ and what he's done for me. The only thing that I can boast in and the only thing I have to boast in is the cross of Jesus Christ. That's the only hope that I have, it's the only comfort I have in life and in death, that I'm not my own, but I belong in body and soul to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. So we anchor to that gospel and let that gospel define us. Declaring the good news of what Christ has already done. And have all of those things lived out as my mind is continually renewed with God's Word. The great value of being focused on the gospel is that Christ died, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us 
to God. And the whole point of the universe is to close the gap between us and God so we spend the rest of our eternity knowing, loving, treasuring, glorifying God. Isn't that great? This idea that when Jesus is the center of everything, then my identity is no longer found in me and what I do or don't do or what I think or don't think. My identity is now found in him. And this peace and joy that he talks about, I think, comes from truly resting in that, truly not just believing it intellectually, but, but physically coming to the place where that's where I live. And if it's not something I ever think about, if it's not something I try to remind myself of daily, if it's not something I read about, then how am I ever going to do that? Like, how am I ever going to get there? And this is why spiritual practices are so important, so important. So with all of that in mind, let's go to him in prayer. Let's thank him for what he has done for us. And um, let's ask him to give us grace as we seek to make him truly the center of our existence, the center of our lives. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the hope of your word. Thank you for the truth of Christ. And I pray, Father, that um, even though we may uh, mentally get this, and while we may mentally affirm it, Father, help us to embody this in our lives. Help us to learn what it looks like to live with Christ as the true center of everything. For our being, for our purpose, for our identity to truly be shaped and formed by him. Help us not only to understand it, help us to experience it and to find the the rest and the peace and the joy that comes from it, Father. Help us to increasingly live in that place and give us a willingness and and, and a desire to put practices in place in our daily life that remind us of what is true and, and point our gaze, point our attention back to him. Thank you for your great love for us. In the name of Jesus, amen.